Welcome to the New Day Community Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you are encouraged by this message from the Nichols Road campus. Approved. And uh, last month we talked about the uh, connection between the person of Jesus and uh, as, as the Word of God. Jesus says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And now we're digging a little deeper into ways to better understand Scripture and the series is called Tools to Understand the Bible so that we can be approved. It's based on the scripture in 2 Timothy. Be diligent to present yourself approved of God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And so we want to rightly divide or understand uh, God's word so that we can be approved, that we can pass the test, that we can uh, be determined legitimate. And actually in one uh, commentary um, or dictionary, the word approved uh, said that that word is, was commonly used for money in which it was deemed um, uh, to be legitimate currency. And so it wasn't counterfeit, it was legitimate. And so as we rightly divide God's word, as we understand it correctly, we are legitimately uh, and we, uh, the children of God and, and the followers of Christ. So that's the idea. <clears throat> I love that our reading plan, if you're joining with us, um, which you should, if you haven't already, you can jump right in and be right on the same page with the rest of us. Um, started out with Psalm 1. Uh, it says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. Okay, God's word. And in his law, he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by rivers of water that bring forth its fruit in season whose leaf shall not wither and whatever he does shall prosper. And so as we devote ourselves to read through Scripture, but also to dig deeper in Scripture, to learn Scripture, to meditate on Scripture, it's something that we do day and night. So obviously that means we do it daily, but in one aspect we integrate God's Word into everything we do. Today uh, I'm going to talk about a particular aspect of understanding Scripture, and that is the importance of understanding context when you're reading through Scripture. All right, you ready for that? <laughs> I realize that this isn't a real amening, hooting, hollering Sunday. It's kind of more like a lecture, so, you know, go for it. <laughs> <laughs> have you ever been uh, say something and have it taken out of context yeah sure all right i wanted to i didn't have time but i wanted to go find some like really funny ones from the internet you know i'm sure there are really funny taking out of context memes right <clears throat> well you can do that on your own time <laughs> sometimes it can be funny but sometimes it's it's really a problem when things are twisted and and uh, you know, misrepresented, and especially when it ends up causing relational breakdown or miscommunication. Context is simply the setting, okay? What comes before and what follows. Um, and <clears throat> when used correctly, it's super important to help us understand, but when things are taken out of context 
or um, uh, uh, the context is confused, it can really hinder us. Right? So it's important to understand the context of any particular passage, but there's actually a number of different uh, uh, aspects of context we're going to unfold. Another error is getting lost in the context, okay, and missing the straightforward, simple meaning of the text. Right? So it's important to, to take into consideration the context, but you don't want to get lost in the context. <laughs> All right? So I imagine this. So when I grew up, I tell people I grew up in the woods, um, which is mostly true. We did have a house, but um, uh, like basically you just stayed outdoors all day. If you weren't at school, you were outdoors working or out in the woods. Um, because my brothers and I, we loved the woods. I could walk out my back door and literally walk for hours uh, because we were way out in the country and uh, it was mostly uh, county-owned property. And so there were just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of acres of woods and, then, and, and gravel pits and farms. And so there were paths through the woods and I knew all the paths. And to this day, I can, I can walk those paths in my mind uh, and, and vividly see the very uh, twists and turns. But if you got off the path too far, you can get lost. And uh, you know, it can be actually dangerous, especially if you get lost at night. <clears throat> and so uh, we don't want to get lost in the context, but we want to be aware of the context. The Bible actually warns about those who are always learning but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth, and that we're not to be like that, right? There's a point at which, all right, you get enough information. You don't have to be a Bible scholar, but you do have to be a Bible student to understand God's Word. Did you get that? You don't have to be a Bible scholar, but you do have to be a Bible student to understand God's Word. So I'm going to actually talk uh, briefly through seven different types of context. Bet you didn't think that was coming, did you? <laughs> so, <laughs> number one, the immediate context is simply the verses immediately before and after the passage you're reading. And that's what most people think of when you mention context. You know, if you see the word therefore, ask what it's good for you. <laughs> All right? And uh, most of Scripture, especially in the New Testament, is um, there's progression of thought throughout the, the chapters and the books, all right? And so there's a building, there's an overall theme, and so you want to know what the immediate context is. For example, <clears throat> as we read this past week in Matthew, it says, when you pray, Jesus said, uh, go into your room and pray, uh, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. All right, does this teach that we are only to pray in secret and public prayers forbidden? You would be, you may be surprised. Well, maybe you're not. Maybe you're one of them. Um, I've actually encountered many people over the years as a pastor who refused who were not comfortable and actually thought it was not appropriate to pray 
in groups or pray publicly. Because Jesus said, go into your room and shut the door and pray. I mean, seriously. Like, they're, they're like, well, we're not supposed to pray in front of people based on this verse. <clears throat> and I'm like, well, no, that's not what that means. <laughs> it does mean do that, but it doesn't mean you don't do the other types of prayer, okay? And, and, the, and the preceding verse um, is, this is contrasted with the behavior of the hypocrites. And the, the verse just preceding it says, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites that love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the street that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. So don't, you know, don't showboat your prayers, all right? But go into your room and pray privately. And that, of course, is the most intimate level of our prayer is that one-on-one. But communal prayer is extremely important. And listen, if you've never prayed out loud with other people, as your pastor, and if you don't consider me your pastor, as a man who... Works as a pastor. Has <laughs> been doing it for 35 years. You got to do this. Oh, I'm not that kind of a person. You are a human. You have a voice. Okay. I'm going to make this sermon exciting one way or another. <laughs> you know that we have no evidence in Scripture that demons can read our minds. Okay. Now, because they are, as far as we know, eternal or not eternal in the sense of God ever being, but once created, they live uh, uh, from then on. <clears throat> so they, a, a demon may have been around for thousands of years. And so they know everything you've ever done, everything your parents did. They can read your body language. So they can pick up on things. They can't hear your thoughts. Now, God can hear your thoughts. If you pray silently, God hears that. But when you pray out loud... There's, a, there's an increase of authority, especially when it's with other people. It's the same thing. You can think anything you want, but you're not held accountable to that. But if you say something, you're, you'll be held accountable. And so praying out loud, praying uh, with others is important. In fact, the following verses in the immediate context of that statement is the Lord's Prayer, where he says, when you pray, Pray together by saying, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, it is enough. Give us our daily bread, forgive us our sins. The whole prayer is in plural. Okay? And so the intent, and, and the church has, has done that ever since, praying out, out loud. Many churches do it every Sunday when they gather together, corporately praying together. So corporate prayer is certainly, certainly appropriate and biblical. And so that's an example of just looking at the immediate context and understanding what it's saying. General context, okay, that's broadening it back out, refers to what the passage communicates in the midst of the book or the portion of scripture in which it is found. And so if you're reading a New Testament, uh, one of the Gospels, which is primarily the account of Jesus's life, the context of that book is going to be different than one of the letters of the New Testament, which is instructions to Christians and to particular churches, or one of the books in the Old Testament that have stories of people doing horrible things. (laughs) You know, like chopping up bodies and really gruesome stuff. 
And just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean we're supposed to do that, right? So we want to know, what, is this a story of a bad guy, a behavior we are to avoid? What's the general context? <clears throat> Matthew 20, uh, uh, 5, verse 29, <clears throat> Jesus said, If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. We will provide spoons <clears throat> after service for us to... Uh, the, the prayer team is trained in... Eyeball removal. <laughs> it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Is that true? Yeah. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Wow! Uh, when, when people who have, have no knowledge of, of the Bible and they get saved, and they're reading through the Bible for the first time, they come across this. Um, it's kind of fun because they're like, oh, <laughs> serious. And, but then there's, there's people who you know, never actually take time to, to, to get to the point. What's Jesus actually meaning here? And so what's the general context of this passage? Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is contrasting extremes, isn't he? Just like in that prayer, don't, don't stand on the street corner, go in the closet. You know? uh, so he's contrasting extremes. And this is an extreme example meant to illustrate the reality of the consequences of sin. Right? Like what Jesus said is true. But he didn't mean that were to gouge out our eyes. The metaphor, as Peter said very aptly last week, is meant to point to a fact, all right, a truth. And so Jesus uses this hyperbole, which is an appropriate, legitimate uh, um, uh, oratory device to uh, point out a very vivid fact. But when you look at the rest of Jesus' teaching and the whole of the New Testament, actually cutting off part of your body would not only be considered wrong, it'd be sinful, and it would be counterproductive, right? And so the general context informs you, well, what, what is Jesus actually saying there that he's not talking about gouging on your eye? And then <clears throat> the biblical context. And so that, this goes beyond the teachings of Jesus to understand that, you know, nowhere else did Jesus say cut off body parts. <laughs> but, you know, the whole of Scripture, how does this fit Genesis through Revelation? Um, and let's use that same example from Matthew 5. Uh, how does the rest of the Bible talk about dealing with sin? Because right? that's what Jesus was talking about. And throughout the Old Testament, there were animal sacrifices were required in response to sin in a person's life. So imagine being a worshiper in the old covenant, taking your offering to the priest, handing over this sweet little lamb without blemish for the priest to grab and slice its neck and bleed it out and then skin it, and quarter it, and throw it on the fire. Come on, kids, we're going to worship today. (laughs) 
Get fluffy. <laughs> Why did they do that to fluffy? Because that's the consequence of sin. In the New Testament, we learn that the Old Testament sacrifices pointed to the death of the Messiah, Jesus, who took our sins upon himself on the cross. Was he cut and beaten and punctured and suffered and died? And so that, that severity is true. Nowhere in Scripture is physical mutilation taught as a way to be forgiven or to be set free from the sin or the consequences of sin or the power of sin. But the picture of the severity of sin is, uh, as, as Jesus depicted in gouging out your eye or cutting off your, your limb, is consistent with the whole biblical uh, uh, account of the severity of the consequences of sin. So we can see how what Jesus said actually fits really clearly with the whole. To understand this verse, we have to place it in the context of the Old Testament sacrifices and the New Testament theology of being set free. How do we get free from uh, that power of sin? It's the sacrifice of Jesus, that Jesus actually was willing to suffer those consequences to free you from that sin. All right. So hopefully that, that to me... When I think about it that way, it's not like, oh, that's a weird thing that I just need to forget. Okay, it's a powerful statement. Jesus was verbally reaching out and slapping people in the face to get their attention. And so when you read that, don't skip over it and go, I don't know what that means. Be affected by it. Like, whoa, sin is serious. Historical context. This is taking into account the historical setting of the original text, when it was written, where it was written, to whom it was written, and how it would have been understood by those to whom it was originally written. Okay? And it's very, very important. Historical context has the ability to open up incredible understanding. It's really, really good. Or it can be misused or overused. And I would say this is what like, people who get into this, like, it, often, like, they really get into it. <laughs> it. Like, they get so far into it that you can't find them anymore, all right? And so uh, overusing it can lead to confusion or believing that someone, that you have to become an expert in ancient history and culture to understand the Bible, when that's just not true, all right? It informs, it gives understanding but never you never can say well I don't under I, you know I can't I can't follow the scripture because I don't understand how you know uh, it was originally understood in the Hebrew or the Greek because right? you know what brilliant people have spent their entire lives crafting an English version and we in our day we don't have just one translation but we have like as many as you want uh, I'll be talking about that next week, how we can compare. And so they actually knew the nuances of every word. <clears throat> so we want to take the historical context into consideration. And often if there's something that's a little hard to understand, 
checking into the historical context or what those phrases meant in the original language can help. So Jesus said, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Bill mentioned that earlier. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. So he's talking about money, and then he's talking about eyesight. (laughs) But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. Then the light within you is darkness. How great is that darkness? He's talking about money. Actually, the preceding passage, he's talking really clearly about uh, how we deal with earthly possessions. And then he just kind of goes off on this tangent about eyesight. And an evil eye is how it's, it's actually in the original, um, or a dark eye. Uh, so, you know, like, why is he rambling about eyesight when he was talking about treasure? What's the point there? Well, a quick search of some commentaries, dictionaries, you find out that an evil eye or a dark eye was a phrase in Hebrew that meant someone uh, that was envious or covetous. And you can kind of get it because, you know, people who kind of like, you know, they're not happy you got a new car. They're mad that it's not theirs. You know what I'm saying? You know, just like this. It comes on someone's face, like, well, I think they wanted to take that from me. All right? That change of expression. Well, so when he said an evil eye, everyone there would have known what Jesus was talking about. It would have been crystal clear he was using an, an idiom, a phrase that they were familiar with, uh, familiar with that an uh, evil eye or a dark eye uh, meant someone that was envious, covetous, full of greed, and it revealed their uh, evil motivation, what was in their heart. And the contrast between darkness and light was a contrast between greediness and generosity. And what Jesus was really teaching was that uh, how we treat our earthly possessions reveals our inward nature. All right? And so again, a simple little uh, uh, look uh, into a dictionary can provide the historical context of what Jesus was referring to that opens up that passage to, to give us a much deeper understanding and a deeper meaning of what he was saying. All right, topical context is similar to um, uh, biblical or general context, but zeroing in on a particular context, uh, sorry, a particular topic and how that topic is dealt with throughout the whole of the scripture. And so on any verse, you can learn something uh, from the Bible. If you're reading a verse uh, in Matthew, like we just did about (laughs) treasure, well, that informs you. But a doctrine or your theology or a teaching on a particular topic needs to be informed by the whole of Scripture. What does the whole of Scripture say about that particular doctrine or that particular issue. <clears throat> in fact, uh, uh, this is taught in seminary and uh, Bible schools, a doctrine requires a supporting passage from the law, the first five books of the Bible, the prophets, which is a general term for the rest of the Old Testament, and in the New Testament. And so anything that's only mentioned in one place, you, you, you just have to go, hmm, wonder what that means. You can't build this defining doctrine. And so, you know, 
something like the millennium, countless books have been written about something that's referred to once in the book of Revelation. Okay? Which in and of itself is a difficult book to understand. And so that thousand year specific thing, yeah, you can find hints of it maybe in Daniel and Ezekiel, but only by extrapolation, all right? Or uh, there's lots of things that are mentioned in one place, but they're not explained or uh, uh, adequately, in, we're not adequately informed in other places. So you can't build a big doctrine. It's not one of the uh, uh, non-negotiables. It's like, you hold it loosely. <clears throat> Does that make sense? Somebody say amen. amen. <laughs> Must be consistent with the original intent of the author in the historical context, as well as the overall biblical teaching on any specific topic. So in other words, <clears throat> if you're going to build a doctrine or, or get something that you really are invested in, you want to make sure that how you're interpreting it is not in contradiction with how the original people understood it. It may be greater than what they understood because they didn't have the whole of Scripture, but it can't contradict uh, how Isaiah meant it when he spoke it. Does that make sense? It has to be consistent with the original intent as well as the overall biblical teaching on a particular topic. This, this, is, this is what uh, cult proofs a person or a church is that you don't make these mistakes. And cults are formed when they make these kind of mistakes on obscure verses and they build whole doctrines on it. It must be supported by the historical understanding that the church has held throughout the centuries. So obviously, maybe you've noticed, churches don't agree on a lot of things. <laughs> but you'd be surprised that the big things we agree on over the centuries. It's amazing when I go to other countries, uh, uh, you know, cultures that, uh, you know, I was shocked when I met uh, people in Ukraine that were, uh, you know, just recently within a few years uh, freed from the communist anti, you know, religion, uh, uh, atheist government. And we shared all of the same core beliefs, all right? Um, we believe the same thing. So uh, looking at how the uh, church leaders in the early centuries, in the, in the middle uh, ages even, and in, in the early, you know, uh, 1700s, 1800s, 1900s, how was this doctrine uh, uh, handled throughout? That informs you. Uh, and it's really, really important to understand. Again, you don't have to be a scholar in these things, but I'm talking specifically about coming to a, 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 you know, a full understanding of a particular topic or issue or scripture. Now, it must not contradict the common sense and clear meaning of the verse. So a lot of things, are there's a clear meaning and then there's a deeper meaning. Well, that deeper meaning can't contradict the clear statement of scripture. All right, or the clear thing that it's trying to, to get for. So let's just take an example. Jesus said, look at the birds of the air. They don't sow. Sow means uh, not sow. Sow means work. They don't go to work or reap. They don't harvest food. They don't store away in barns. Your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you more valuable than they? Is Jesus saying, hey, man, dude, 
You need to lighten up. Quit that job. You know? Grow the hair out. Get a big beard. <laughs> Live in the woods. Everything's going to be great. All right? Jesus said it. I mean, the Bible says eat, drink, and be merry, right? Because tomorrow you're going to die. I even have two verses to support this theology. <laughs> you're all going to quit your jobs tomorrow. We're all going to live right here together. Right? And we're going to pick the berries that grow for two weeks in the fall. <laughs> no! <laughs> A thorough study of the Bible on the topic of work and handling what God uh, provides and the harvest he provides, how dealing with our money gives you a much, much different uh, uh, perspective on what the Bible expects of work. Jesus was talking about worry, not work there. And so you can't take that out of that, the biblical context. <clears throat> this is a little bit more unique. This prophetic context, uh, often you don't think of it this way, but this is how it's best understood, I think. It's the way that I, helps me understand it, is understanding how a passage is fulfilled in the fullness of time or in the, the big story of Scripture. Okay? Zooming out and saying, what, how does that fit with the, the, the big story? So we have another example of this as we were reading through Genesis 14. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram uh, by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So as you're reading through that story, and uh, maybe you did that this week, you just kinda, it's just kind of inserted there, almost like a side note in the story of Abram ref, uh, rescuing his nephew Lot after Lot was captured by some enemies. And Abram gathered his 384 or so guys, you know. Can you picture them? They must have been on big horses. <clears throat> and I don't know. I don't even know if they had horses then. <laughs> Did they? Okay. <laughs> And so they went out to war, and they, they rescued him, and, and then Melchizedek comes. It's, just, it's only a few verses in, 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 in Genesis. And for most of the Old Testament, it was recognized as, oh, here we have an example of the importance of the man Abram, the patriarch of the Jewish people, and that he, were, he was uniquely blessed by God, and it was recognized by a non-Jewish, right? So Melchizedek was not a Jew because he wasn't a descendant of Abraham. Because Abraham hadn't even had any kids yet. All right? <clears throat> but he was a priest of the Most High. Okay. Have you ever thought that, like, what was going on there? There was, like, another religion that worshipped the true God. Right? Because he was, the Bible actually says he was the priest of the Most High God. There was still a knowledge of God that was, you know, Abram wasn't the only guy. Melchizedek was another guy that was worshiping the true God. Probably, you know, was referring to the same stories that we have recorded in Scripture. All right? It was legitimate, but it was just kind of a passing note. 
But through a prophetic lens and the interpretation that we have in the book of Hebrews and a few other places, Melchizedek is a powerful symbol of Jesus. And, and it's a reference in the Torah, in the law, that Jesus would be from a different priesthood than the Levites or Aaron. Okay? And it foreshadowed, that's huge, okay? It's actually the premise by which Jesus is able to be the Messiah because he was not a descendant of Aaron, okay? Like, did you know that? <laughs> this is why the Jews, like, he can't be the Messiah. He's not a descendant of Aaron. Well, he's not a, he's not a part of that priesthood. That priesthood is part of the law, all right? And so this, this actually becomes a hugely important verse. And then that foreshadows things like community, brings up bread and wine. And it, and it teaches us tons on tithing. Because here it's mentioned uh, that Abram, uh, if I remember, it's the first mention of tithing in, in the Bible. And so it, it, it informs that. I have another sermon on that. So we discover the prophetic context by asking ourselves when we read a passage, how does this... Uh, fit in, or how is it fulfilled in the person, the life, the place of Jesus? How is the story or teaching of this passage applied in the light of the cross and the resurrection? And you can do that with every single story, every single passage in the Bible. In fact, you must do it. All right, you need to understand the Old Testament in its original historical setting. But as Christians, you need to see how those verses and passages, how are the laws fulfilled through the work of the Messiah? Uh, Jesus said uh, the Old Testament was written about him. Right? We learned that a few weeks ago. And so we need to see how is Jesus reflected in these Old Testament laws about, I mean, they get right down to the nitty-gritty. If there's mildew in your walls, it tells you how to chill with it. Did you know that? There's a lot of weird little things. And you have to go, how does Jesus fit into that? Yeah, all kinds of stuff. <clears throat> that's, a, that's a prophetic uh, context, how it fits. And then the last one is something, I just made up this term. <laughs> but if I looked hard enough, I'm sure there's a book somewhere that has it. So some, some smart guy wrote a book <laughs> and used the phrase subjective context. Okay, this is a term I use to understand it, a passage in our own lives. Okay, <clears throat> any subjective application must be submitted to the objective truths of Scripture, of course. But God directs us uh, 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 God speak to, speaks to us directly through his word, right? Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. He didn't say, my sheep read my book. He could have said that. He said that, and he repeated it numerous times. And so we need to come to scripture believing that God's going to speak to us, speak to you in the context of your life through this word, on a regular basis. <clears throat> You've heard that it said, so we're going to take a verse. You've heard that it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Oh, that's nice. That's, that's, that's a Christian platitude, okay? That's like, oh, that's a nice thing to say. 
just as this white people say, Jesus was a nice person. Love your enemies. You know, and it's true. To those who heard it, right, to the historical context, that, you know, did you, when Jesus said that, if you were in Palestine and Jesus, and I was Jesus and, not, and, and you were sitting there listening to, who, who would they have thought of? Yeah, the Roman, the big guys with the, the swords and the knives and the ones that took all of our stuff. <laughs> Tells us what to do, right? It's really easy. And they would harshly uh, discipline anyone that disobeyed any of the Roman laws. Like, it's real easy to, they're the enemies, right? Or in the general biblical context, well, it'd be any of the people. It'd be the Babylonians or the, <clears throat> you know, all these different, the Egyptians and all these different enemies of the people of God that persecuted uh, those who are righteous. Topically, we could understand, you know, love your neighbor and, and love your enemy. Well, neighbor is anybody that has need, right? So topically, as we look through that, uh, it would be, well, we need to love those people who have need in our lives. We need to uh, uh, be, uh, our enemies would be false teachers that are warned about in the scripture, those who oppose the gospel. I mean, Paul faced a lot of enemies, right? But you know, no one's going to arrest you for preaching the gospel here in America at the moment. <laughs> All right, so what does it mean to us right now, right here? Who's your neighbor? Who's your enemy? Who's persecuting you in some way? You can't fulfill that scripture unless you know. You might say, well, nobody. Hmm. What does that say about you? Jesus said, in the world, you'll have tribulation. Maybe we're too much of the world and not Christ-like enough to have someone giving us trouble for being Christ-like. That would be a subject of context that you need to interpret that verse into your life. Who's the people persecuting you? Maybe it's the, you know, the people that keep changing the, those rules about that, that, that sickness that is going around. I hear people complaining about it every single day. You know, I'm like, hey guys, we got it easy. In Ontario, they shut all the restaurants. Can you imagine that they let in the US? <laughs> Out come the guns, man. <laughs> How about, you know, they throw you in jail, take away your house, uh, take away your kids. In Ukraine, I met parents whose children the state had taken away to raise in the state schools to indoctrinate them. And they never saw their kids, or they, what, they, they'd only see their kids for a few weeks during the summer. Okay. But, but we need, again, we need to say, okay, maybe it's just the clerk at the, the restaurant or the grocery store that's taken so long and they're, they're bugging you. 
love them. All right, you have to answer this question. Immediate context, general context, biblical context, historical context, topical context, prophetic context, probably the most important, subjective context, all ways to understand God's word.